Welcome to the Seed of Better Conflicts podcast on the Singapore Convention, or to give it its full title, the United Nations Convention on International Settlement Agreements Resulting from Mediation. 12th of September 2020, the Convention will enter into force. And here to discuss this landmark moment for mediation are two leading ADR experts, Jan O'Neill, professional support lawyer in the commercial disputes team at Herbert Smith Freehills London. Jan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ben. And James South, mediator and managing director of the Centre for Effective Dispute Resolution. Thanks, Ben. Um, in this podcast, we will reflect on the impact of the convention so far, explore some of the practicalities of the instrument, particularly for lawyers, and also look at the opportunities for the development of mediation more widely. And I suppose a logical place to start would be just to look at the convention as a whole and also where we are in terms of the signatories and the ratification process. So James, would you mind kicking things off with that? Yeah, thanks Ben. I, I guess pretty, in terms of what the convention does, it pretty much does what it says on the tin in terms of the full title. It, it, it's a convention which uh, ensures that any settlement agreement uh, for coming out of uh, uh, international dispute uh, between parties uh, f resulting from a mediation will be enforceable uh, in the local jurisdiction uh, if the, the jurisdiction is our signatories to the Singapore Convention. Um, so from that point of view, it mirrors, tries to mirror what the New York Convention did for arbitral awards um, when, 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 when that came into force. Uh, so that's the main focus of it. In terms of where we are now, I was lucky enough to be invited to Singapore in, on the 7th of August 2019 for the, the signing ceremony. And at the ceremony itself, 46 states uh, signed the convention. Uh, and I think it was a convention which had the highest number of initial signatories, I, I think, in history, if I, I remember right. And I think, Jan, you might know about that too, right? Mm, I think, yeah, I think it was a sort of a record-breaking um, number for, a, yeah, for an international convention, which has sort of helped get some headlines for it. Yeah. yeah, and I think it gives a sign, doesn't it, of that there is some interest in this uh, mm. and that it is a signal that this perhaps can be a bit of a game changer, although it's not going to be an immediate game changer, I think. So those were the initial signatories. And then on the 25th of February, Singapore and Fiji deposited their instruments of ratification at the UN, with Qatar being the third to do so on the 12th of March to 2020. And the third signatory is the one that triggered um, the six-month period for the convention to come into force. Hence, uh, on Saturday, the 12th of September, uh, it will uh, legally come into force. Uh, just finally, in terms of update there, since Qatar ratified, Saudi Arabia and Belarus have also done so. And I know there are a number of other pending um, uh, countries which are, are about to or are looking at ratifying shortly. And I guess the big news that the other thing that got headlines was that amongst those initial um, signatories, um, both the, two, the world's two biggest economies were, were in there. So the US and China, which is a bit surprising, I think, for a lot of, a lot of people um, to see, you know, see them signing up, given, especially given that US still hasn't ratified the, the Hague Convention on, on the choice of court agreements. So in, in terms of enforcement of court judgments, but yeah, as you say, it's sort of really interesting to see to think about what that means in terms of you know both countries um attitude to, to to mediation and dispute resolution of course they haven't ratified it yet but yeah having that that would that really gave the the, the convention a bit of a boost um being able having you know both china and and the us sign up to it 
Um, so yeah, we'll see. Looking at sort of notable signatories, what about the sort of notable, so to speak, in terms of maybe, you know, some the UK and the EU where mediation is, is quite well established in, in most of the jurisdictions there? Yeah, Ben, it was really noticeable at the signing ceremony, the lack of EU um, countries that, 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 had, that didn't sign up. In fact, there were none. Um, and so it was glaringly obvious at the, at the signing ceremony and obviously subsequently that the EU uh, have, have not been uh, signatories. Now, of course, they, they, they have the mediation uh, EU directive uh, in force for, um, for enforcing settlement uh, uh, agreements within member states. And I know there's a debate at the moment whether they're going to sign, whether they will sign en bloc um, or, or they will have to sign individually as states. So I, I don't know where those discussions have got to, but um, so that we, we, I think we need to wait, wait and see what's going to happen in relation to the EU. Mm. Um, it, I don't know, Jan, whether you have anything to say in, in that no, respect. No, I mean, I think, I think that's... I think probably people shouldn't take it as that you know it's 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 not um, there's no interest in the you know in the EU countries and the UK from it and that you know that it's been somehow dismissed or as a you know not important. I think it does come down to that. It's much more sort of inter typical EU Brussels issues that you know the EU is sort of um, considering whether it should sign up as a bloc or whether states need to join individually and then the whole thing about you know, Brexit in the UK. Um, I do know that the UK is the you know the government did issue a consultation on whether the UK should sign up. It was very much went under the radar and was a very quick short consultation. We haven't seen any um, any results out of that but um, yeah I mean they it's notable, I guess, but I guess I think it can be, um, and I might be jumping ahead here, but um, Ben and sort of prefacing some of your next questions, but I think a lot of people who, who are thinking of it in terms of um, similar to the New York Convention, um, may be thinking that because the, the UK and the EU hasn't signed up, that um, certainly the people in Europe thinking that um, then they don't need to, that they may put off having to engage with the convention, um, sort of on the assumption, well, if my jurisdiction hasn't ratified it yet, then, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll look into this when and if it does. But I think the key point, and without getting too technical here, is that um, key point that I think isn't really appreciated about the convention in a lot of the commentaries that I've seen is that it does differ from the New York Convention um, and also a lot of the, the Hague Conventions about enforcing court judgments in that um, it, it isn't actually based on reciprocity. That is in reciprocal enforcement between member states. Basically that because me, you know, unlike an arbitration agreement, uh, arbitration award that has a seat or a court judgment that has its own jurisdiction, mediation agreements don't sort of actually have a home nationality usually. You know? um, and, you know, the bottom line is that um, for any country that ratifies the convention is agreeing to enforce any mediation that occurs anywhere in the world, not just mediations that came out of, of another um, uh, ratifying state. So it's not just a little small club where we each uh, ratify, uh, acknowledge and, and enforce each other's mediation agreements. Once um, the countries that have ratified it sign up, they, they are agreeing to enforce any mediation that occurs anywhere in the world. So, so people in the UK and EU, um, while um, that might be thinking that, well, it doesn't affect us yet. In fact, from Saturday, I think the 12th, is the Saturday the 12th, um, from when it takes effect, it will be 
any mediation anywhere in the world now can be potentially um, made subject to the convention or the convention can be relied on to enforce that um, a settlement coming out of that mediation um, in one of the ratifying states. And of course, we'll get on to you know, that that's sort of limited number at the moment. But that, yeah, I think that's a sort of key distinction from the New York Convention that hasn't been appreciated. So the question of who, the key point is where you want to potentially enforce your mediation rather than where your mediation is, is taking place. So, um, and I guess that comes back to China and US again, why that, that's so important, the, the issue that if you may potentially want to enforce in the US, particularly if, if you're up against a, a US or a Chinese counterparty, um, then the convention could really be a, a potential assistance to you. Um, even, and then it's totally irrelevant that, that the UK and the EU um, haven't, haven't signed up to the, to the convention yet. And I think um, that 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 way that's going to work is going to be particularly important as more countries ratify and, and there's you know obviously more more choices and and where mm -hmm. it can be enforced. And I think going back to the UK, I mean I, the reason the UK government, as I understand it, and the city understands it, hasn't. Um, signed it to date is that they say look we've got an effective fr framework for enforcing mediated settlement agreements mm. uh, and therefore they don't see what more the convention could add to the existing functioning UK enforcement framework mm. for settlement agreements um, but for me this really ignores one of the other core benefits of the convention beyond the, the practical aspects um, is uh, that you know it by ensuring that you've got an enforcement um, mechanisms um, it removes any objection. Um, the, the main objection that I hear time and time again, all over the world, when I go to different countries, you know, the settlement agreements are not enforceable. Now you hear that in domestic disputes, and of course you hear it even more in international disputes. Now with the, with the convention coming into force, that is no longer the case. Uh, therefore, that, that objection to, me, to mediating what will no longer be sustainable. And I think it's a bit of a sea change there, therefore, about how people can think about mediation. Uh, and I think London is seen as one of the preeminent cities for international dispute res resolution currently. Um, and we'd like it to be set, continue to be seen uh, as, as one of the, the preeminent seats. Uh, and with in increasing international mediation, I think um, we will come under competition with New York potentially being uh, ratifying. Singapore is already ratified. Um, and these are seats already for international dispute resolution. So London needs to be careful, and the UK needs to be careful that it doesn't lose its um, sort of um, status as a preeminent international dispute resolution city by, by not sort of signaling that they are, are going to uh, come under the regime of the Singapore Convention. Hmm. And looking at the impact of the, the convention, or even though it hasn't entered into force yet, on the global dispute resolution landscape, James, you're saying, you know, you think it might remove one of the historical barriers. I mean, is there any other signs that the convention, you know, since it's about a year old or so, has actually increased confidence, awareness or recognition within the sort of dispute resolution community for this pro for mediation? Well, I'll let Janet talk about the, some of the micro, maybe from your client's point of view. Um, I'll, I'll talk about some macro things that I've seen. Um, I think, that, first of all, I think we need to be realistic about the impact that a convention can have in the space of only one year. Um, uh, and particularly since half of that year has been, the world has been dealing with the, the COVID pandemic and we've all been 
um, focusing on other things. So I, I, that's sort of a, uh, a caveat. Um, I, I think um, the second point is that, again, CETA believes the convention will only be called on, uh, called upon on a limited number of cases to in terms of actual enforcement. Uh, the outcomes of mediations are achieved after difficult negotiations and parties usually intend to comply with those settlement agreements. So in that respect, it's quite different um, from situations like litigate actions or international arbitration. And we see this in domestic mediation. We know uh, where mediated settlement agreements are almost never needed to be enforced because they are voluntarily complied with. So we, we would suspect that there's not going to be much actual um, necessity for enforcement of, of international settlement agreements in that respect. I think the main contingent impact the Convention will have, as we've said, is a, is a, um, is a statement which endorses mediation's credibility as one of the, the key pillars alongside arbitration uh, and um, litigation as a way of, of resolving international dispute resolution. Um, just in terms of the green shoots, we are seeing some green shoots of the impact. Um, uh, one example is currently UNCITRAL Working Group 3 is looking at uh, reforms of the investor uh, state dispute settlement process, which by its very nature is international uh, and, and is currently done completely by arbitration. Uh, one of the things I know the working group is looking at is the use of mediation as, as, a, as a way of settling these investor state disputes. And, and the fact that there is already now an international treaty on the enforcement of settlement agreements not only makes it practically easier to achieve uh, the use of mediation in these types of disputes, it gives it credibility amongst states um, who are perhaps less familiar with mediation. So I have had um, some discussions with legal representative states in relation to the possibility of using um, mediation for investor state disputes. And they say the fact that the Singapore uh, Convention exists does make it easier for them to recommend mediation to their political masters, for example. Another example, I'm currently working on a study and uh, comparing the use of mediation in Latin America for the resolution of intellectual property disputes. And one aspect of this comparative study is to look at the local and international legal frameworks for mediation, and specifically where the countries are signatories uh, to the Singapore Convention. So it's an indicator that countries are using or bodies that are using to see where the development of any countries are in relation to uh, the use of mediation. So I think these are important sort of signs and signals uh, how, the, how the convention may begin to be used. Yeah, I, I yeah, totally endorse that, you know, and from a practice um, perspective that, um, you know, our starting point is, you know, obviously, um, in the UK, dealing with commercial disputes where mediation is, you know, it's very, the culture of mediation is very well entrenched, you know, a lot of sort of the initial reaction to the convention is, well, you know, do we really need it? Is it, is it that important? And, and, and yeah, totally agree that um, the majority of cases, I'm not, obviously can't put stats on it, but that um, the parties sort of failing to honour mediated settlement agreements is, is in practice, we found at least in commercial practice, it's very rare, really, it, it, it is very rare. Um, and again, it, because, you know, as you say, James, because it's the result of um, consensual process, you know, two levels, both the agreement to enter into to mediation and then the agreement on the specific terms once parties have gone through that and thrashed it out, you know, usually they, just in practice, they tend to honour it. But of course, 
us knowing that and saying that and then and being a is a separate thing to being able to convince people of that um, who come from jurisdictions where you know, mediation isn't well entrenched or even in, in areas domestically um, uh, where mediation is less less commonly used than it than in commercial so and then so that's I, I agree that the, the the real immediate value anyway um, is is less in that we'll suddenly see a flood of um, uh, settlement agreements being enforced that that wouldn't have been able to be enforced before or that would have been stuck you know bogged down in bureaucracy and it's more about yeah the the, the um, credibility I think as you say James you know just making bringing you know, media, mediation up to be on a par with arbitration and, and court judgments, um, and particularly in other jurisdictions. I think it's jurisdictions where mediation isn't, where you need to persuade, where you need to persuade um, either, you know, lawyers need to persuade their clients to, to um, consider it, um, or you need to be trying to persuade a counterparty to, to mediate. And I think being able to, as you say, counter that objection, that, that, objection that yeah well but is it enforceable um and just having that that the the legitimacy of a of a convention that you can say no we have a equivalent to the new york convention here um you know it's going to be enforceable and of course it's limited the, the jurisdictions at the moment but i think yeah even just being able to point to a convention um to someone who's like coming completely new to to mediation really really um does legitimize it um, because we do, we have this conversation sort of regularly with clients from different, you know, when you're doing international uh, litigation, um, having to start from scratch, explaining what litigation, what mediation is. And yeah, you do hit that point where the question always comes about sort of, well, how is it enforceable? Uh, and to be able to, to refer to that, yeah, is, um, is going to make a difference. But I agree with you that it's, um, it's a longer term. I think. It's, I think it's more a question of maybe two, three, four years um, that you look back and look at the, you know, how uh, be able to assess uh, increased usage of mediation across the globe, um, rather than be able to point to, you know, there's some sort of big wave of, of changes in the next year or two. Yeah. yeah. I think the other thing we may see is it, it's, a, it's impact on local domestic mediation legislation as well. One of the things we saw with the EU directive was uh, because member states were having to enact it uh, for cross-border disputes, um, that at the same time, they got their domestic uh, their, their mediation legislation in place for domestic legislation, or they simply applied the regulations to both. So I suspect we'll see similar things in the in the next few years, where minimum states, if they're going to ratify and 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 have these things applying for uh, international disputes, they will also begin to look at their domestic legislations as well. So we'll see an overall improvement for for regulation, not only for international disputes, but for uh, mediation uh, for domestic disputes. Um, for mediation. The, the other thing which I think will be interesting, and we haven't seen this yet because it's too early, but I was th thinking about was whether we will see the convention play a role in international disputes that result from the pandemic. Um, because I think we know, and I'm I, I uh, interested to jam what you think on this, but you know, we have heard that international supply chains have been you know, affected by COVID quite majorly. And this may result in a number of, you know, international disputes in, in, in respect of that. Again, having a convention as an enforcement framework may help parties to consider the use of mediation in this context, rather than go through, you know, lengthy and complicated lit uh, international litigation. Um, 
when the focus for companies and should be at this time, you know, getting back to business uh, and trying to uh, protect the cash flow uh, mm-hmm. rather than, than expensive litigation. Uh, Jen, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think, yeah, obviously, I mean, it differs, but people's sort of predictions of exactly how big the explosion of litigation is going to be. But um, yeah, supply chain interruption is, is, you know, is the really key um, in whatever form that you put it is, is, is going to be a key issue. And then all the insurance ramifications of those, you know, who should in reinsurance disputes. Um, so, you know, even, you know, even on the best case scenario, there is going to be a bit of a, um, you know, a flood of, of litigation coming out of the pandemic. And then in a kind of a perfect storm, it's also at a time when court system, although it has tried to move to remote hearings, um, is already still facing um, the, the backlog of cases is building. Courts have been trying to shift to, to you know, remote hearings and things, but there's already building a backlog. And, you know, I think in six months, especially for the bigger commercial cases, you know, things are just taking longer. So the existing sort of argument in favor of mediation, that it's, you know, faster and um, you know, more efficient than litigation is, is, um, is enhanced, I guess, that, that, that argument. Um, and then, you know, thirdly, at the same time, people are, mediation i think during pandemic has seen a bit of a growth area it's it's if you want to say it's one of the winners out of out of the, the pandemic in terms of people becoming uh, a lot more um prepared to a look at it and to realize exactly when specifically when you're doing remote mediations how um how easily uh, they can be organized um once people are becoming a lot more um uh let's just say computer friendly uh, or sort of you're more open to having meetings um, you know on zoom or whatever that it, it I mean it's anecdotal at this stage but that our experience has been that um, people have embraced remote mediations um, and are latching onto it as as looking forward thinking you know who knows when we could see a, a court hearing um, you know we'd be looking at 20 22 now um there's you know a little combination perfect storm of of, um in mediation's favor of you know courts being blocked people being more open to remote mediation um and you know now having a a, an international convention i think it's really a sort of a shot in the arm yeah for mediation just going back to this sort of um point about developing mediation at a national level with, with some of the sort of behemoth infrastructure projects we're seeing going on around the world, particularly the sort of Belt and Road Initiative in China. Do you think mediation or during the convention will help raise the profile of mediation to become a, a tool that's used, you know, for settling disputes in some of these massive cross-border projects that we're seeing going on? Well, certainly for Belt and Road, um, the Chinese government has made sort of no secret of the fact, has made, has made it very clear that they want to encourage use of mediation to deal with all, all the sort of inevitable big disputes that will come out of that. That was even pre-COVID, you know, even before, you know, if you're thinking about just, you know, out of it, that sort of huge infrastructure um, projects uh, inevitably come, will come with big um, disputes. And, you know, the Chinese government has been at, at pains to do that. And you can see that their, their signature to this convention and to the Hague um, the Hague Convention as well, um, and all the steps that they've been taking um, to open up, you know, their court system as well, is really, um, really shows that they're 
they're embracing, you know, that I think that, you know, that, that, that China is embracing it and that the Belt and Road could actually, you know, given the number of other countries globally who are, who are going to be involved in that and who are going to, you know, get, um, you know, have, be exposed to mediation through that, through the, you know, the Chinese encouragement of it, yeah, is definitely going to play a factor. And then it all just gets exacerbated by when you add the COVID factor to it, just yeah. exponentially grows, yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think it's, a, it's been a conscious strategy on the part of China. Uh, they haven't made, as you say, Jen. You know, this is they want to to use um, these types of settlement um, mechanisms. Uh, therefore, the signing of them signing the Singapore Convention is highly surprising in that context. And I think all these things begin to play into um, where we see, you know, the use of mediation in international disputes um, um, beginning to really take hold. Mm -hmm. Just going back to some of the practical considerations, particularly for lawyers, Jan, you mentioned earlier about the sort of uh, need to be conscious about the sort of in enforcement element of the convention. Is there anything else you think that maybe lawyers or people who will be using the convention need to be aware of at this early stage? Mm. Well, uh, I mean, I don't want to get too technical. There are a few little issues and niggling sort of um, controversies about the convention that, you know, commentators that we've commented on about, well, how is this bit going to work and what does that exactly mean? Um, none of which have clear answers to them yet and none of which are, are, um, are sort of earth shattering in the, in the sense of that it's going to undermine the whole, um, the whole structure of the convention working. Um, but then you just, it's, it's, it's more about, and when we've commented on it, it's really sort of ended up, you know, the bottom line is to just think about this in advance. Think about now, from now when it, it, the convention is going to be in force, um, to start being aware, and the starting point is that that I mentioned, being aware that um, it can potentially, the convention now will potentially apply to your mediation. That's the start, you know. Um, uh, and it, it may not, it may not, or A, obviously, because... Um, it, there may never enforcement issue may never arise, um, but if you're sort of out of abundance of caution when you are when you're planning the mediation, just to have in mind that is there anything I need to be thinking of now to build into either the mediation agreement or in the discussions that we have, um, you know, in the parties in the lead up to the mediation agreement, that to, to make things a bit smoother and easier um, so that someone doesn't just mention sort of at the eleventh hour when you're signing off the, the settlement agreement at you know, 11 p.m. on the mediation nights. Oh, what about the Singapore Convention? Does this does this affect this at all? And everyone's running around going, oh, I'm not sure. Do we need to know? Um, so we've just looked at it, thought through the issues beforehand, see if there's anything. Um, and there's a few little issues there, but the and I, I won't sort of go into them. We've got, um, we've sort of analysed them quite a lot on our blog, at the you know, Herbert Smith Freehills ADR blog, um, if, you, if you want to sort of go um, <laughs> get into the nitty gritty of it. But the, the one I'd probably flag more is that has the potential that just in the initial stages to cause a few hiccups and um, delays and that sort of thing is, is mainly the requirement under the convention that um, in order for a, a country to enforce mediated settlement agreement, one of the requirements is that it has to be um, satisfied that the country court that you present it to has to be satisfied that the um, settlement uh, resulted from mediation, um, which is not a big requirement, um, but that does suggest that the, 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 the usual method of proving that would be the examples given in the convention are, uh, for example, the mediator's signature on the settlement agreement or a separate document signed by the mediator confirming that the settlement arose from the mediation. And of course, that's, you know, 
that, that has rung alarm bells for a few people in the mediation community, especially in the UK, given, you know, the, the entrenchment of the idea that, you know, mediators, once it's signed, as they step out and that are not involved in enforcement and that mediators can't be called to give evidence as to, um, as to what occurred in the mediation. Um, and so it's really, I mean, it shouldn't in reality be um, a big obstacle and it shouldn't undermine that, that basic principle that mediators shouldn't get pulled into enforcement action and having to get up and give evidence that, yes, you know, it did happen, uh, you know, that, that, and this is particularly the case, I guess, where the mediation, where the settlement agreement isn't agreed um, on the mediation day, but perhaps the next day or then the next week. And, you know, there's a, it might be a, 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 another line of defense that, no, this didn't result from mediation. I think it, it's really just a case of discussion. I mean, that's what we're really just saying to clients is to just think about it in here, just something to just mention to the mediator in advance, just think about, well, in what form, if this does settle, um, how will we just, um, as a matter of course, if we're going to routinely include in settlement agreements or at the conclusion of it, something in writing to the effect that in case it ever did get to needing to enforce this and we wanted to enforce in a country that has ratified the convention, which of course, and sometimes you don't know at that time what countries, you know, you, where there might be assets and where you may actually need to enforce down, the, could be years down the track. Um, you know, if, if the decision is that just as a routine matter you want to, and, and we're probably recommending that just to um, make sure that you have all your ducks in a row if, if you ever did need that to be able to prove that the settlement did result from mediation to just discuss it in advance you know with the mediator and the other side as to how that will be proved and just to and as i say to avoid avoid the mediator balking you know at the last moment oh i don't i'm not sure about signing you know signing anything of course they don't have to do it on the on, at the time of the settlement agreement but that's you know what we recommend rather than trying to go back to them years later when you're trying to enforce it and have them so little things like that um, to just you know think in advance, making sure that the settlement agreement is is drafted in a way that if you did need to present it to say the government of Qatar or Fiji or um, or the US, more importantly in China if they do ratify it, just to be aware of of any um, as as you would you know, good practice would be normally to do in any settlement agreement anyway, but it's just more so now. Um, the fact that just to think about um, spelling everything out perhaps in clearer than you would have otherwise, make no assumptions about that a court, you know, like you might think that an English court will know what you're talking about when you make um, references to certain certain things, just to make sure that you, the settlement agreement is drafted in such clear language um, and, and that it could be presented to anyone, any court, anywhere in the world, and it would be totally you know, comprehensible. Don't sort of just think of it as, um, as, as that, oh, well, the court will know what, what we mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Jan's right. And these are, while they are theoretically issues to be to resolve, they're not practically problems that can't be resolved. Yeah. Um, and, and practice will, you know, practice will, will emerge to how, how, how will we deal with it in the context of international disputes. 
covered by the Internet, uh, by the Singapore Convention. There will be, I'm sure, a way found by lawyers and mediators to agree this is the way we're going to do it. If they're reluctant to sign a, a, the, the settlement agreement themselves, uh, some form of document confirming that the agreement did come out of the mediation while not being signatories to the settlement agreement will be, will be, will be one way. So I think practically we'll find ways together as, a, as a lawyers and, and mediators to, to make sure that the, these provisions are, are, are complied with after the satisfaction of mediators, clients and the parties uh, and, the, and the lawyers. Yeah, I'd say a year down the track from now, we won't be having these conversations at all or be settled or years maybe. Um, it's just during the little teething process, I guess, now that it's in the period between it coming into force and people actually, and that, that process all being settled. Um, yeah, it's just we're just really advising clients, yeah, just try not to try to avoid any sort of last minute hiccups or, um, or delays by, you know, thinking about it in advance. But yeah, as you say, none of it's, um, none of it's deal breaking kind of stuff. Be prepared, I guess, is a message. Yeah. By way as a sort of final thought, as we look to the future, what can the sort of dispute resolution community more widely, you know, mediators, uh, parties, lawyers, judges, what, what can they or we do to encourage further the use of mediation? I would say really it's just a case of, you know, as I said before, the, all the factors are there, all the perfect storm of, you know, factors sort of ready to encourage people the need for it, the, the, um, the mechanisms now through remote, you know, the, um, and, and the prompt of all the, the um, disputes that are going to be arising. Um, I, I think beyond what we normally, you know, we would normally say um, to people now more than ever, it's a case of flexibility. It's just being being alive to the fact that mediation doesn't have to look like it did uh, even a year ago, um, and that you know the whole one of the the big benefits of mediation is, of course, the the ability of the parties to be flexible and make it what they want in whatever form, and that's just um, that's just been thrown open even more now by by COVID and the um, you know the conventions giving it that theoretical push but on a really practical level that parties should just really embrace that the freedom that mediation gives you to really think outside the box yeah i mean i agree i think um you know mediation and, and international mediation for national disputes really will be part of the new normal whenever we get to the new normal for the reasons that i think hopefully we've set out in in this discussion um and it's you know we can do mediation online virtually um, it, it will pro provide some of the answers to the issues which the world's facing today. And I think the Singapore Convention underpins that. So practically for me, there are two key things. We've got to keep talking about it and, uh, and promoting it, just as this, hopefully this podcast and discussion that Jan and I have had uh, with you, Ben, uh, has done. I mean, I, for example, I chair, I'm also a, a member of the Board of uh, International Mediation Institute. And I know they've done a whole series of, of um, webinars on this, talking about it, looking at it from individual jurisdictions and how it's applying in individual jurisdictions and, and what difference it's making. Um, we shouldn't only just be talking to the mediation community, but also to those stakeholders who are likely to benefit. So international business, government and other influencing bodies um, to, to, to get them um, understanding you know, the potential for this to help in, 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 the, in the current uh, environment. I think finally, we need to continue to encourage states to sign and ratify. The more states that you have signed up and ratifying it, the more moral force as well as legal force it will have as a serious instrument um, uh, to showing the seriousness of mediation. 
Um, you know, so we I know CETA is doing all we can here in, in, in the UK uh, to encourage the UK government uh, to, to sign uh, the, uh, the convention. Um, through that consultation process that uh, Jan mentioned earlier, uh, we put representations in and we're continuing to have conversations and we'll continue to have conversations with um, the Ministry of Justice and others to encourage the government to look at it. So I think we just got to keep uh, across the world uh, where countries haven't signed or ratified it. And if mediators, lawyers um, and organisations um, are in those countries to encourage their, their, their countries to, to sign for all the reasons which we've set out um, in this podcast ready. James, Jan, thank you very much for your time today. It's greatly appreciated. And I would encourage anyone who's looking to learn more about some of the technical aspects of the convention to head over to the Herbert Smith Freehills ADR hub to read a little bit more about it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, James. Thanks, all.